agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this week? I'm I'm uh, cold and windblown uh, right now, and after a, uh, but uh, it's a Cleveland yeah, February kind of thing, certainly. Yes. So now I, I know it's been a, a rough week for you, and in fact, uh, the passing of someone very important to you and important in politics as well. And so, why don't we we start off the show with that? Yeah, I, I did, and thank you, Mike. Uh, this is what they call in the legislature rising for a point of personal privilege. Um, uh, last week, Ohio lost uh, uh, former Speaker William G. Batchelder the uh, third bill to to those who knew him, uh, and. The whole this is kind of goes to my uh, you know origin story as a defender of freedom. Uh, Bill is is sort of the reason I'm I'm here. Uh, uh, maybe the reason I'm anywhere. Um, he uh, he was a mentor to me. Uh, I was his legislative aide for uh, five years, uh, when, beginning when we served in the minority, and then when he became Speaker Pro Tem. Uh, and, and he was uh, the funniest, smartest. Uh, a person I've ever met, uh, most the, a person with the, the greatest integrity I've ever met, and uh, for I know a lot of times, Mike, we bemoan uh, sort of the lack of integrity in, in public servants and the, the the mixed motives that that drive them into this business. But but Bill Batchelder was was not uh, one of those people. Uh, he was he was in this always for the right reasons. Uh, and and he he did tremendous work, and I just want to share a couple, just the 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 Batchelder sense of humor and the uh, the, the wittiness. Um, um, someone shared the other day the story of um, he returned to the legislature. He had been um, um, term limited out, and then served as a judge uh, for oh, close to ten years, uh, but decided he liked the legislature better, so he ran again. And this was in the the post nine eleven world, uh, and there were all sorts of new security measures um, uh, uh, in place, uh, which which he never cared for before. There was a first step of security back when we were there after Oklahoma City. Uh, his his uh, thought was it, it was an unnecessary burden for people to get to uh, get in to speak to their representatives, uh, which he thought was was really important. He welcomed people coming in, sitting down in the office and talking to him or, or me uh, on whatever topic uh, was bothering him that day. Um, he also said he also thought that the uh, uh, anyone who would uh, seek to assassinate a state representative was seriously lacking in ambition uh, or his words. Um, but after 9-11, when he returned, beginning early in the session, and I think uh, he was not recognized by one of the security people, um, uh, and he, of course, was sort of oblivious to them being there because he just sort of blows through things. Uh, security guards ask, you know, he sees them passing through and they're, sir, sir, stop, please stop. I need to see your ID, sir, sir. Uh, and he finally stops. He says, oh, yes. And then the security guy says, well, do you work for the state? And uh, Bill, without missing a beat, says, "Oh, I know. I I, I work against it." Um, <laughs> so that that sort of gives you the just the sense of. And I wish I could convey it more. We could do an entire 
podcast series on uh, on on um, uh, Mr. Batchelder, but he was a, a great man, and he affected so many lives, uh, uh, mine included. Um, and uh, he will be be greatly missed by the people who knew him and uh, by the state of Ohio. So I just wanted to, to get that out there. All right. Well, we have a, a lot we're going to get to today. Uh, Russia and Ukraine, uh, a bunch of lawsuits, both uh, from the federal government and against the federal government. Uh, uh, something about the Durham probe. We haven't talked about that in a while and a lot more. But before we actually get to that, we will take a quick break and then we will be right back to start things off. Okay, so we open with the topic we've been discussing a lot on the show of late, Russia's uh, almost but not quite yet invasion of Ukraine. Early this week, it seemed like there was a glimmer of hope uh, as the Kremlin announced they were pulling back some troops from the border. But, well, satellite imagery indicated not only was that untrue, but that Russia actually had moved more troops into the area in the last week. And the Biden administration. It's, it's almost like you can't trust the Russians. You know, right? it's, it's funny, isn't it, that way? Yeah. So, you know, the Biden administration says, been saying with increasing vehemence that they expect the Russian invasion in the next few days. And they say that Russia is planning on staging a false flag operation to kind of justify that invasion. In fact, on Thursday, we've, we may have seen the beginnings of this with uh, the shelling in eastern Ukraine, including the shelling of a kindergarten, which Ukrainian officials say was conducted by Russian-backed separatists and Russian media saying, well, no, Ukrainian forces were responsible. And also this week, Russian lawmakers have been encouraging Putin to recognize the eastern Ukrainian cities of uh, Luhansk and Donetsk as independent. So, you know, Jay, uh, I want to get your take on what we've seen with Russia and Ukraine this week and, and also what you think about the Biden administration's public comments, which essentially amount to saying, well, Russia's made up its mind. In fact, the president's just flat out said that and uh, not just to invade, but to invade under false pretenses. So, uh, look, I'm I'm going to give credit where credit's due. And uh, I think the Biden administration is correct in in calling this out and saying uh, this is plainly invasion. This is this is exactly what it looks like. Uh, and I, I think getting the message out there that no, we, we you you simply can't trust uh, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, or the Russians, and I I fully expect that that's correct that there is is going to be some sort of a false flag, uh, you know, movement that they will need to go in and liberate uh, uh, you know Russian uh, uh, citizens or Russian speaking people um, uh, uh, from um, uh, the depredations of the Ukrainians. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think he's he's right on that uh, uh, in terms of, of what we can do. Uh, as we've discussed before, I think our options are limited. I don't think anyone is seriously talking about um, U.S. military defense uh, of Ukraine uh, or, or stepping in to counter a Russian invasion. Uh, the best we can do, and um, I wish we'd done more of it earlier, but we are where we are. Uh, is making sure that the the Ukrainians have the armaments uh, uh, to to resist and, and make Putin pay as high a price militarily as possible, uh, and that we're prepared to move quickly on sanctions uh, so that we can impose some sort of economic cost on him as well. And again, I, I don't think that either of those two uh, pieces changes the situation. I, I don't think that changes his calculus in terms of invading. 
but uh, perhaps it raises the cost uh, to him. Um, and uh, we, we can we can sort of beef up the other uh, NATO allies in Eastern Europe uh, to make sure that uh, he gets the message that uh, he, he best not stray any farther than, than Ukraine. Well, and again, what do you think about just the actual sort of, I guess you could call it the PR strategy uh, from the, at least the public statement strategy from the Biden administration? Because, of course, typically what we see before there are some hostilities is uh, the public statements are, well, we're we're hoping this doesn't happen and we're, you know, we want to give peace a chance and all this sort of stuff. And so this is very much like, no, this is almost certainly going to happen. This is something we we generally we in fact rarely see. I can't I can't really recall this happening. And it's a very different sort of way of approaching it. And so but it sounds like you actually approve of this of this approach. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is this is a little bit of a weird situation. And then I'm trying to think historically if there's any precedent that we've ever really seen where, um, you know, countries are, are so loudly and forcefully announcing, hey, we're getting ready to invade. Um, you know, if you think back to, to World War II, there was certainly some of this, but we didn't have the type of intelligence we we do now and satellite imagery and being able to view where the troops are going uh, and, and amassing in real time. Uh, and I think that's I think that's a difference, uh, right? That it's it's surprise attacks um, like you used to have just just are, are much much harder, if not impossible, uh, to come by. Um, so I, I think that's part of it, right? We're in a we're in a, a weird situation where everyone knows this is coming, uh, and there isn't any sort of surprise or the sense of well, maybe we can we can avert it. Um, yeah, certainly um, countries always give lip service to, to peace and let's keep negotiating and all that sort of thing. And I think I think the Biden administration has said some of the right things about, listen, he did, this doesn't have to happen. Um, but the ball is in Putin's court. And, uh, you know, we've sort of reached the end of of, of our negotiating and we, we have every reason to believe he's he's going to move forward and, and invade. And I think that's that's very helpful. Right. In terms of just um setting out the the truth of this um sort of the the opposite of a of a munich uh moment right, right um right. you know so, not not let's not let's not pretend that we're somehow going to have have peace here um now in in fairness in in, in fairness um uh to chamberlain i mean i think he he really believed uh he was going to have peace um but i, I think just you know we're we're not we're not in that place no one believes it and i don't think you know diplomacy there's there's always some some disingenuousness right in in uh in diplomacy um and it serves a purpose to to a point but i think there also reaches a point where that disingenuousness um just makes uh everybody look silly and makes uh, uh us look like we we lack resolve or lack the the basic understanding of what's going on so I, I'm, yeah, I, I, I mean, there's lots of stuff I complain about the Biden administration all the time, but um, I think they're at this point. That's that is the right move is saying we believe they're going to do it, and if they do, the the cost is going to be severe. Now, again, I, I might, I might be um, uh, more uh, direct to say here will be the cost. Here are the sanctions. Here's the package. Uh, uh, you know, we're voting on it. We have the votes. That sort of thing. Um, but 
in the general messaging of, of like pretending that there will be a diplomatic solution. Um, I think this is correct. You know, you and I, of course, are both kind of old cold warriors, but I thought for, for a different perspective, we could try to consider this more from the America first sort of perspective, because it seems to me that the non-interventionist argument or the non-Ukraine support argument uh, seems to me that essentially, you know, of course, we don't have a defense treaty with Ukraine. It's not a NATO member. And so we shouldn't be wasting resources in its defense or even get involved in any sort of funding covert or overt of resistance forces or Ukrainian government forces right after an invasion. And that this is essentially a European problem, and we should let Europe deal with it, particularly Germany, which, you know, Germany has made a decision to move away from nuclear power almost entirely. And because of that, it's made it's it's it knows the consequences of that. And it's made itself even more reliant on German energy, or sorry, on Russian energy. And, you know, Germany has the fourth largest economy in the world. And as such, Germany should be leading the push for European security and doing way more than it is for the defense of democracy in Europe. I mean, Germany's not even willing to put up its 2% of GDP for, for NATO support. And that's the, you know, the, the ostensible guideline. So why should we bail out Germany, bail out Europe when they're not willing to, to get defend themselves and when they certainly have the economic means to do so. Isn't it time to stop the free riding and say these are the consequences? If you want, if you're concerned with the defense of Europe and Russian aggression in your backyard, don't look to us. Look to yourselves. Well, I, I guess I'd, I'd point out the obvious sort of historical precedent that uh, German-Russian partnerships uh, rarely end well for anybody. Yeah, um, but is that fair? I mean, that's, we're looking at very different governments, a very different period. So no, I, I mean, I think, I think it is a little bit. I think it's it like, so I don't think so, no. Because you're, obviously there's there's the argument, and I, I argue this all the time, and I think it's absolutely correct, that that uh, Hitler and Nazi Germany were something uh, apart from, from anything else uh, the world had ever seen, uh, right? It's it, sure. it, it, sui, sui generis, and to say, um, you know, every German government is Hitler, uh, or, or every every dictator is Hitler, uh, is is uh, nonsense. But I do think there there are um, long term geopolitical strategic factors that don't change, right, and that haven't changed for centuries. And, and that is, there's there's always been this this tension, right? And in, in Germany is sort of the the bulwark of of Western Europe and and Russia, which has always had this sort of expanding and receding um, uh, pull in in Eastern Europe. And and I think that that existed, you know, under under Bismarck and you know b before Hitler. And I think I think those forces are still at play, even though the, the players are different. Um, that that both you know the Germans and the Russians distrust each other. Both seek to um, expand their sphere of influence, or or if you want to call it a buffer zone between the other. Um, I, I think that's that's just one of those geopolitical sure, okay, facts, so and saying. that plays into it. Yeah, but of course Germany is a is a uh, 
democracy, a real democracy, and has been one for a long, long time, whereas Russia is an authoritarian state. And so, you know, I, I, I'm all for Germany expanding the influence of democracy, just like I am for the U.S. doing it in our sphere of influence, which would be, you know, the Americas. And so that that's the argument, I think. And, and I, you know, I think there's something to be said for that argument and yeah and so do you do you disagree do you don't do you think that germany should be doing more oh yeah okay absolutely um uh but the problem is they're not and uh they don't seem inclined to well that's my uh, point right and that's and, the point and, and of it, the... Se- it seems you know that the germans may look at this as again the, the you know very much the molotov ribbentrop back and again i understand that um the players are different here um but the the sense, you know, back then was, hey, you guys go ahead and take Poland and we're OK with it and we won't bug you and you won't bug us. Uh, I think there is sort of a, a sense of, look, Russia, if you want to take Ukraine, um, as long as you're still providing us with the natural gas we want, uh, you know, we're not going to we're not going to uh, cause much of a fuss over it. Yeah. OK. And 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 so you say that the United States should be willing to bear any burden, fight any battle in the defense of, I don't know, Ukrainian freedom. Oh, I would. I don't know about bear any burden, fight any battle, right? Uh, and I don't think there's anyone out there seriously uh, uh, suggesting that that this would be U.S. You know, suggesting U.S. intervention or war with Russia or anything uh, akin to um, uh, you know pushing Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait or something like that. Um, I I think we ought to be you know look at what our national interest is. Whether we have the the wherewithal um, to fight a war and a continued war and a possible continued occupation against a um, you know Russian military that is uh, I wouldn't say is no longer a superpower but um, but not necessarily a pushover uh, yeah uh, definitely uh, not for, for territory that we can't we don't have much of a, a, a you know sphere of influence type claim to. Um, well, you know, you can and, claim, you know, we don't have, and we don't have a, a an uh, alliance with. We, we're not obligated to, but I think we should still do everything we can up to up to that point uh, in terms of leadership in the international community uh, and whatever we can do uh, unilaterally uh, in terms of supplying arms right. and making the, the the cost of an invasion as high as possible to Putin. Okay. And, you know, uh, we've talked in the past about the uh, wider ramifications, like, for instance, with China uh, and Taiwan. And you, there's been talk that, well, you know, Putin was emboldened to do this thing, which I, I'm, I'm betting by the time a lot of listeners here it will already been a, a done a done thing. The invasion will have happened. But, but in part because of the uh, what he saw from Afghanistan, right, the pullout in Afghanistan. And so there are people saying, well, then China's looking at this and they might be thinking, hey, what's you know, what's the U.S going to be going to do if we decide we want to take over Taiwan in a very real way. And, you know, I wanted to, to look at that as well. What, you know, what could the U.S. really do to stop a Chinese takeover of Taiwan if they chose to eventually invade? And, you know, th- this is, again, going back to this sort of America first, uh, isolate, semi-isolationist view saying that, well, wouldn't be, wouldn't we be better served just let China deal with China's own sphere of influence. And, you know, we haven't recognized Taiwan as a country for what, like over 40 years. And, years probably, yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, and you could also make the argument that a less aggressive military posture right in China's backyard 
could potentially lessen tensions and, and give us maybe some leverage to, to use that in, in coming to agreements over things that are clearly hugely important to Americans, uh, to America, like intellectual property and trade issues and that sort of thing. And, you know, people say, well, think about if you think about the shoe being on the other foot, if China had a, you know, a a significant military presence in, you know, uh, uh, right off the Atlantic coast or right in our backyard, that would, that would cause us some problems as well. So, and I think that's, I'm not necessarily saying I entirely agree with this argument, but I think that there are points that are, that are being made here that are at least worth considering. So uh, I've considered them. Uh, <laughs> okay. And I guess, no, I, I think so often um, foreign the whole foreign policy thinking and foreign policy establishment, and I don't know, maybe I'm using that that incorrectly because, uh, in this case, the establishment would seem to be more of, of, of along my line, I think. But, but so many uh, folks treat uh, international relations as they would interpersonal relations. Uh, that hey, look, uh, China, uh, we'll we'll be we'll be cool with you, and you be cool with us, and and it's all good. Um, and hey, if you want to invade Taiwan, uh, we're not going to cause much of a fuss. And hey, maybe then you could um, uh, cut us a break and stop stealing our intellectual property. Uh, I, I don't think that that argument is is going to fly with uh, Xi uh, or or you know the, the Chinese government at, at large. Um, but uh, you know, just just uh, the sense is when you're dealing with those types of of persons and or countries. Uh, that that interpersonal piece just doesn't matter. I mean, that was, that was a mistake I think Donald Trump made, right? He had he believed in his personal charm and, hey, I'll talk to this guy and we can make a deal and uh, I can talk to anybody and make a deal. Um, and even, even uh, uh, you know, George W. Bush had the same sort of, you know, I've looked into Putin's eyes and, you know, this sort of thing. But um, states don't act uh, like people do. And even more so, dictators don't act like like you know the people in your office or or, or someone that oh, no, you know right? your, yeah. your, your neighbors are having some some interpersonal issue with. Uh, and I think it's it's really naive to think that. I think if we were to to do that, China would say, "Okay, we'll take Taiwan, and yes, we'll keep taking your intellectual property too." Um, and and you might say, "Well, geez, that's not fair. Come on, man, we just let you take Taiwan," and they would say. Uh, well, yes, we're taking your intellectual property too, and you know Japan's looking kind of nice, also. Um, and and yeah, and so that's that's kind of at the heart of the cold warrior argument, if you will, and that's that's certainly the position where I I tend to to fall more clearly, like you do, in that what author what especially what authoritarian, and I think it's an important point to make, what authoritarian regimes respect is power and what they uh, will exploit is what they see as weakness. And so we have to make a distinction if we're dealing with a truly democratic regime as opposed to an authoritarian regime. And of course, in the case of both Russia and China, we're dealing with authoritarian regimes. And that that I think that's why, you know, I, I agree with you. I think it's important to understand the uh, America first sort of isolationist viewpoint, but I think it falls apart exactly where you say it does in the fact that we're not dealing with democracies that are responsive to popular rule and popular will. We're dealing with a very different type of setup. And so therefore the same rules that we would use if we're dealing with Canada or Germany or something like that, they just, they just don't apply. It's not going to be very effective. Yeah. And I would also, 
put in a pitch here for American exceptionalism, because uh, I think this is a place where it shows up in that there there have been uh, conflicts that we were involved in uh, throughout history, throughout recent history. I'm thinking, for example, uh, Serbia in the 90s and uh, um, uh, Somalia uh, in, in the 90s, where our our national interest was really pretty limited and really pretty hard to define. Um, Serbia, I, I would say, bigger national interest because it was causing a uh, a big problem for Europe in terms of refugees uh, and and the sense that you know originally there was the well this is a European problem they can take take care of it themselves, but they didn't, um, and, and they don't. Uh, they tend not to. Uh, the same goes with with the Congo um, or with um, with Somalia. Uh, there was very much a humanitarian crisis going on there, and we looked at this and and as a superpower, um, and as the American people look at this and say, no, we can't countenance genocide um, when we may have the power to stop it. And and I think that's that's something different. I I do think that the United States. While it has this this um, um, you know protectionist uh, fortress America type isolationist instinct, at the same time also has this uh, let's call it uh, evangelical uh, for freedom, right? That that there's the idea that that we ought to uh, uh, spread freedom and defend freedom around the world um, that other countries just don't have. I, I don't think I just I don't think there was a, a debate in uh, Germany or France uh, about geez should we really intervene in Somalia? Um, there there didn't seem to be even much of a debate in Germany and France about what to do about Serbia back in the day, the Serbian Bosnian conflict. Um, so I, I think that's that is uh, America is just different. I mean I think just because of ideologically temperamentally uh, on the fact that we are um, a superpower. Uh, that that we view these these things a little differently than other countries. Well, I, I think uh, next week, Jay, you and I will be will be doing the show uh, next week, and I expect that we will be at that point talking about what what exactly we will be doing to respond to the Russian invasion that has uh, right. has happened. But, Not particularly you and me respond to the Russian. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we. Although, we I mean, I, we will express outrage and so forth, but yeah, it's probably not going to do a whole lot for Putin. Exactly. So yeah. All right. uh, Let's, let's move on before we do that. We'll take a quick break and then we will be right back. This week, the department of justice sued the state of Missouri over that state's second amendment preservation act, which the quote from the legislation declares as invalid all federal laws that infringe on the right to bear arms under the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and Article 1, Section 23 of the Missouri Constitution. Now, under the act, not only are Missouri law enforcement officers prohibited from enforcing federal firearms laws that Missouri has declared unconstitutional, but they can be subject to up to a $50,000 civil penalty for enforcing federal firearms laws, as well as attorney's fees added on to that. 
Now, the DOJ alleges that Missouri's law is, in effect, a nullification of federal law, and as such, it violates the supremacy clause of the Constitution, citing a line of precedents going, well, all the way back to McCullough versus Maryland in 1819, in which uh, Chief Justice Marshall, writing for a unanimous court, held that, in Marshall's words, states have no power by taxation or otherwise to retard, impede, burden, or in any matter control the operations of the constitutional laws enacted by Congress to carry into execution the powers vested in the general government. This is, we think, the unavoidable consequence of that supremacy which the Constitution has declared. So, Jay, what's your take on on Missouri's law and this lawsuit? Well, I think John Marshall's right. (laughs) That's fairly a good bet, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we we touched on this before, and and uh, you know these sort of things trouble me. I, I think it's just again I put this in the category of just plain goofy. Um, I think there there could be, and a weird thing, there could be. I think Missouri things Missouri could do uh, through its own state constitution, enforcement of whatever protections it has under that, that you know affords firearms greater state constitutional protections than what the Fed, the Second Amendment does. Um, uh, but, but no, there there is a quite a long precedent uh, about whether states can nullify federal um, acts, and and they can't. And we fought a war over this. Um, and and there, I mean, it's I I think there's this whole like you know from a theoretical standpoint, the whole fascinating bit of you get into the the roots of the nullification theory that arise from the it was the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. Um, written by uh, Jefferson and, and Madison, respectively, um, uh, where they, they took aim at the uh, Alien Sedition Acts, saying that, that look, these, these acts are unconstitutional on their face. And this is before um, uh, the Supreme Court had gotten into the business of, of saying what was unconstitutional and what wasn't. Um, but states should feel free to, to uh, ignore them, nullify them. Um, that was picked up later uh, by opponents of the National Bank and and uh, some tariffs and John C. Calhoun in the uh, 1830s. And then that same argument was then, of course, carried into um, the slavery debate. Um, but that's that's sort of, again, I think it's all fascinating history. Um, but it, it's pretty plain and it's pretty well decided that, that uh, the Supremacy Clause, the Clause means what it says. And states cannot nullify federal laws. Yeah, and you know, it, 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 that point you mentioned about Missouri could do some things to enhance firearm protection. Now, obviously, because of the supremacy clause, they can't declare, uh, flat out declare federal law right. invalid in Missouri. But right. one thing I was thinking that they could do that, that might be okay constitutionally is make the case that Missouri can, for instance, instruct state law enforcement agencies that they don't have to assist the federal government in enforcing federal firearms laws. Yeah. Yeah, like, oh, and that's yeah, that's the same thing that you know that uh, sanctuary cities exactly. and so forth yeah. have done. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's no there's no requirement, and in fact, it would be a uh, you know the uh, a constitutional violation for the federal government to enlist uh, state authorities to to do that. But so yeah, they they could opt out. Um, they could, uh, and, and again, I would think so many of of these federal. Crimes would would probably be crossover be, between state crimes anyway, yeah, right? Yeah. So, um, I think the the rarity that you'd have would be things like um, 
you know, background checking and licensing and, and those types of things that are, are, are clearly preempted by, by federal law. Um, other things Missouri could do is say, listen, if, um, if uh, someone violates someone's Second Amendment rights or uh, whatever the corollary rights under the Missouri Constitution are, yeah, we can provide for a suit and you can have uh, punitive damages, liquidated damages, whatever, and increase a penalty on uh, people who violate uh, those rights. Um, but uh, I don't think you can, uh, under any circumstances, just say we're going to um, – declare the federal law invalid. Yeah. And, 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 you know, this, you called it uh, a goofy, right? Because it's just so clearly, that there, there aren't too many things we, we run across that are as clearly unconstitutional with as strong a line of precedent as, as this is, right? But this wasn't something to just kind of squeak through. I mean, uh, this law passed in the Missouri House 103 to 43 and yeah. 22 to 10 in the state Senate. The, the governor, you know, happily signed it into law. So as a I think it's fair to call you a constitutional conservative. What does it say to you that the Republican Party in Missouri was thrilled to basically nullify the Constitution? Uh, what's that? What's your takeaway from that? Well, my my guess is that this is one of those situations where you can sort of uh, sound really tough while avoiding any sort of actual accountability because everyone knows that you're not actually nullifying the constitution, nullifying federal law, <clears throat> and that you can't, right? Uh, so it's it's sort of an easy vote um, to, to say, uh, hell yeah, I'm, uh, you know, and it, it's it's more just a um, now, of course, if they want to do this the, the constitutional way, they could have passed some sort of legislative resolution saying we. Uh, we find these, you know, federal laws to be odious and, you know, that kind of thing, um, which would have accomplished the same purpose. But, uh, you know, it'll allow these folks to go and beat their chests and say, uh, look at me, uh, I'm, I'm standing up to the federal government. Um, and if it wasn't for those, uh, those weak kneed wishy-washy courts, um, you know, we'd, we'd be fine. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't care for that sort of legislation uh, at all. Um, uh, but I, I understand the, the political reasoning behind it. Um, because yeah, no one's, no one's going to take them to task for saying this is clearly goofy and unconstitutional. Right. And that's what I'm wondering, because some people would say, well, isn't this a, isn't this a, a, a frivolous thing that wastes the considerable resources of, of the court system? And isn't it basically misusing, in a way, sort of taxpayer dollars and the resources of the system to make some sort of a symbolic point? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, look, I, I think I, I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say waste, because to some extent, uh, legislatures, uh, that's sometimes what they do is make symbolic points. And, and to some, it may be frivolous and others, it may not. And I'm, I'm not, I'm, so I'm not necessarily opposed to, to symbolic points. Um, uh, so for, I mean, for example, um, where I live, uh, a couple years back, the Lakewood city council, uh, passed a resolution, um, uh, opposing, uh, the citizens United decision. Um, with you know all the wording of this is this is a horrible sure. affront to our constitution and so forth, um, which I thought was stupid and goofy and a waste of time, um, and and I was right on all of those. Um, but but I mean I think it's 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 one of those it it, it happens right, and I guess sometimes um, you know elected officials feel that need to 
put themselves on the record right on a on a certain issue but, but would you say there's here's what i'm getting at would you say there's a difference between passing a resolution which is yes. not the sort of thing that's judicially challengeable or anything yes. like that and given that and, and something that says well we are going to pretend that we have the authority to do this which suggests you know i mean there are legitimacy issues here involved because there are plenty of people yeah. who say yes you should do that and and the hell with the constitution we should be able to know so there are ram i'm saying there are potentially ramifications here that there aren't for say like you suggested you know passing a resolution yeah yeah no i i agree um Although I think the ramifications are are not going to be that great, right? I think it's going to go to court, and the the court will say, uh, uh, "Look, I mean, assuming assuming it actually gets, uh, you know, well, I mean, I guess it's it's, it's in court already because so yeah. the federal government sued, um, but the federal government will get a declaratory judgment saying, um, "Hey, Missouri, you can't do this because supremacy clause," um, and they'll probably appeal that. And you'll get a a fairly, you know, <laughs> short opinion uh, there also. Uh, and does the Supreme Court end up taking this case? I I very much doubt it. Um, and, so, and so it's basically just like a a, a pretty simple, so a nice sort of breather for the federal judges who have to deal with. Like, oh, this is an easy one. We can just yes, kinda... yes. No, I mean, <laughs> seriously. When I was when I was a clerk, um, uh, yes, you know, you kind of you kind of love those cases, right? Kind of give the clerk uh, some experience. Say, why don't you just write write the draft of this one? Go ahead and uh, yes. uh, yeah, get get your feet wet on this yes, really yeah, simple you one. You lose. See Maryland versus McCullough. There you go. Um, okay. You know, I I think it's and and look, I mean, the and to some extent, there are probably some federal judges who would get a kick out of. Uh, they can write a great big uh, stem winding opinion. Sure. Um, and citing all sorts of history and saying, you know, no, you idiots, this is you know entirely. So you know. I yeah is there um is there a, a expenditure of of legislative and judicial resources that might better be expended elsewhere uh sure um but it certainly wouldn't be the first time that uh and and you have to look at you know the the way our system is set up um we're not supposed to be efficient well that's good <laughs> that works right? out well you know, I, mean, I, I know <laughs> i think there's there's a certain point to um uh, look, if if they want to, if if the people want to vent on this, uh, they can they can do so, and um, I think that's healthy for democracy, and maybe it's a healthy healthy learning curve uh, for folks when uh, when they get the opinion back that says no, um, look, we've been telling you since 1819 you can't do this, uh, <laughs> you know. I, Except so my I, sense I don't, I don't is, see it. look, I mean, is is it a, a waste? Sure, but there there are plenty of cases out there that you might say are a waste of um, of judicial resources that, you know, either are pretty clear cut to begin with or probably could have gotten resolved earlier. But that's that's yeah. what the court's there for. Right. You know, my sense is, though, is that it's not really a healthy learning curve because to plenty of people, it's not going to be, oh, the court said that we can't do this. Huh, I didn't realize that. Good to know. It'd be more, right. well, these corrupt courts that don't want that want to you know trample your rights. And so we need to do something about that. So that that's my concern about something like this as opposed to a resolution. Yeah, no, and I, I can see that. But. 
Okay. Well, if you are a Politics Guy supporter, the rest of the episode is coming right up. And if you're not, just a quick reminder that full episodes, which are ad-free and run around two hours or so, are available to our Patreon supporters, as well as to anyone who isn't in a position to financially support the podcast or just like to try out the full show before becoming a supporter. To do that, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support us through Venmo or at politicsguys as well as through PayPal. You can find support links in our show notes and at politicsguys.com slash support. And again, if you would like access to full episodes, but you are not in a position to support us financially, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will be happy to get that all set up for you. And whether you're a supporter or not, if you could subscribe, rate the show, leave reviews on whatever podcast app you use, that would really be helpful, as would be sharing episodes on social media. Thanks so much.